Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. With that said, let's go ahead and let's pray once more. Lord Jesus, we um, pray. We are a praying people uh, because we are a people who know our limitations and we know that you are good to hear. Lord, you talk about uh, how even if wicked fathers, nor- fallen fathers, human fathers give good gifts to their kids when they ask, how much more will you give good gifts to us? And so, Lord, the fact that you listen to us, the fact that you want us to cry out in our need and you are willing to act is a wonderful truth we ought not to neglect, even when it just comes to sitting as your gathered people under your word. So we ask that you be honored in our hearts today and that you help give us ears to hear and hearts to worship. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So as Rob mentioned, we are cruising along through the book of Deuteronomy, and we have two sermons left this week and last week, and we're going to close up the book. And today we have a wonderfully unique passage, not only in the book of Deuteronomy, but actually in the scope of all of Scripture. Today's passage is primarily a song. Now, song in and of itself isn't super unique because God's people have long been a people of song. In fact, in the middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. It's a song book for God's people. And even going into the New Testament church, every Lord's Day, every Resurrection Sunday, people have gathered for the last thousands of years and they have sang praises to God. Christians are a singing people. And as unique as that is, when you look at the spectrum of religions, that we wouldn't just chant, we wouldn't just talk, but we sing, C.S. Lewis reflected once um, on his coming to Christ. And in looking back, he noticed that there is this universal desire for praise, whether you're Christian or whether you're not. And not only to praise, but to praise out loud, to voice praise to something which seems miraculous. And this is what he says. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. This is where he ran out of things and went to his weird friends. Rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it, saying, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that? Magnificent. The world is calling us to praise. Every time you review something on Yelp, you are praising something and inviting others to participate. But what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 32 is that God is calling us to praise Him. In other words, there are thousands of things in this world that demand your praise, but here in this text, it is showing us the ultimate object of praise, but also the substance of transformative praise. In other words, praise that changes us. But as I said, there are a couple of unique things with this song, and the first is that this song isn't 
all roses. This song includes harsh words of judgment towards both Israel and ultimately towards the enemies of Israel. In fact, this song is almost a mixture of three types of song that we're used to. It's one part national anthem, singing the praises and the history of the nation of Israel. It's one part kind of uh, an African-American spiritual song, a song of lament in seemingly hopeless times. And in another part, it's a victory ballad, confidently looking forward to deliverance and salvation. And so it's unique in its content, but it's also unique in that this is a song written by God himself. Now, it's true that when you read your Bible, any song you see in Scripture is written by God. We just read that when Paul read Scripture earlier, that all Scripture is written by a concurrent act where the Holy Spirit causes men to write. So God wrote all the songs in Scripture. But what's unique about this is that God is going to dictate this song to Moses. God is the songwriter of this song. If you ever wanted to know if God could write a song, what song would he write? This is it. This is the song that God wanted us to hear. And we see this in part of what we read last week, Deuteronomy 31, verse 19. This is God writing to Moses. He says, Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And then skip to verse 22. So Moses wrote this song. That's the song that God told him the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Then you look into what we're going to look at today in verse 30. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. And so if you have a Bible, the headings in your Bible are put there. They're not part of the original text. They're put there by translators and editors, help us know what's going on. My Bible says the song of Moses. And that's true in that Moses is singing and teaching this song. But this is first and foremost, this is the song of God. This is God's song given to his people for God's purposes. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at two primary questions concerning this song. And we're going to see how it not only shapes the circumstances which Israel were in during this time in Deuteronomy, but how it also shapes what we do as Christians when we gather in our church and when we worship our God. And these two questions we're going to answer are these. First, why do Christians sing? And then secondly, what do Christians sing? Why do Christians sing sing, and what do Christians sing? And here's the first reason. We're going to see two reasons why Christians sing ultimately. And the first reasons that Christians sing, first reason that Christians sing, is that God wants and is worthy of our singing. God wants and is worthy of our singing. And we see when God introduced this in verse 19 of chapter 31, God wanted to be sung to. And we also will see as the song unfolds that God is worthy to be sung of. Look at how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 92, verses 1 through 4. It is good, right, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your works. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. We sing 
because God wants to be praised, and we sing because God is worthy of praise. Do you see how those two things work together? He wants it, and he is worthy of it, which means this. When we come and we sing what we have already sung, the primary audience for all of it is God himself. We sing to please God. We do sing for our own sake, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but we primarily sing, just as Lewis noted, because God is worthy of our song. He is worthy to be praised in spectacular ways. And this is why we sing even in church today. We aren't Israel, right? This is not just a proof text for what the church should look like because this wasn't the church. This was God's historic ethnic people. And so things change when Jesus comes. But singing didn't change. When Paul is writing to churches in the New Testament, both when writing to the church in Ephesus and writing to the church in Colossae, he encourages both of them to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. They are to sing, which means God has continued to tell us to sing. To come to church and to not sing to God is to be like a husband whose wife leaves on Valentine's Day morning like a nice wad of cash and then details for the date she wants you to take her on that night. But instead, you take that wad of cash and you just go to the sports bar. God wants, he's told us what he wants from us. He wants us to sing to him. And so we as Christians sing because God is worthy of it. God is making it clear what it looks like to love him. And I'm going to speak specifically to men here because sometimes there's this disposition to, to stoicism towards singing. But God has told us to do it, whether you are a musical person or not, whether you are a male or whether you are a female, whether you are young or whether you are old, whether you listen to 80s hair metal or whether you listen to Christian music today, which means if you belong to Jesus and you come to church and do not sing, it is not austere stoicism. It's actually spiritual arrogance, saying, I will not. I will not respond this way. I will not say these things. It's actually a lack of self-control, of not responding to what God has told us to respond to. Praise flows naturally from those who know God. But at the same time, it's not heartless. Think of it as like a magnet. If you take two magnets and you draw them closer to each other, there is some law of science which demands that one goes to it, and it clings to it. And yet, even though it is demanded, that is precisely what the magnet was created to do. That magnet longs to be drawn towards the other one. And so it is with our praise. God demands it from us, but it is also our delight to enter into it. And so we sing because God wants and is worthy of our singing. But there's a second reason why Christians sing. And the second reason takes into thought the context of what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. Because in one sense... A song popping up in chapter 32 is a completely odd occurrence. Because if you remember what's gone on up until this point, the Israelites have been redeemed out of slavery. They've been brought out of Egypt by mighty signs and wonders. And immediately out of Egypt, they were delivered through the Red Sea. They come to Mount Horeb, and God descends on a mountain in flaming fire, and they're too scared to go near to it, so they stand off in the distance. And then God brings them to door number one to the promised land, to Kadesh Barnea, but they're too scared to go into the promised land because they're big people and tall walls. And then they spend 40 years in the wilderness as punishment, wandering around, yet God cares for them. 
And now they've come all the way back to door number two to the promised land here on the plains of Moab. Door number two to what in the past had only been failure. And they look across the Jordan River, and on one side are seven nations, mightier, stronger, and more well-armed than themselves. And on this side of the Jordan River, their leader, their miracle-working national hero Moses, is about to die. And God here is going to give to his people exactly what they need to kick down the door, to storm the land, to usher in their world of promise. And he gives them not a military guidebook, not a revelation for modern technology. Instead, he gives them a song. What would you do if this is what you were met with? A song. And yet we know the power of songs. Science has dedicated countless studies to the wonderful and miraculous way that songs or little jingles help embed things in our memory so that we won't forget it. In fact, a study in 2008 sought to examine those nostalgic songs you hear on the radio. You know when you hear a song on the radio you listened to when you were young, it kind of transports you back to that day. You get those feelings of high school or of your honeymoon or whatever it is. And actually what scientists are finding is that our relationship to songs like that actually contribute to our own autobiographical understanding of ourselves. Our experience with songs makes sense of us. Songs change us. They do something to us, which is why God is prescribing it. God didn't just read a scientific study in advance and say, this will be neat. God designed us this way. God created us in this manner so that we might use what we hear to the glory of God. So God wants to do something in this song. And look at what he wants to do. And so we're going to read part of what we looked at last week, and we're going to read the conclusions. These are kind of the two bookends to this song. And in these passages, we're going to see what God wants to accomplish. So look with me at chapter 31, verses 19 through 22. So this is, again, God writing to Moses. Now, therefore, write this song... And teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full grown and fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness. Why? For it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. That's the song that gets stuck in your head and you can't get rid of it. That's what Moses is saying this song is going to be. For I know, says the Lord, that they are inclined, what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land I swore to give them. So Moses wrote this song on the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And skip to the end of the song, verse 44 of chapter 32. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. And so, here we see this thing 
that God wants to accomplish with his song. He wants the song to cause them to, to, to bear witness to them, to stand and to confront them, and also to remind them of something. And we know what it means for a song to bear witness to us, don't we? How many of you know the jingle, I before E, except after C, or was sounding like A as a neighboring way? Yet how many of you, when writing your tithe check to Sovereign Hope Church, spell it wrong? You see, it's not that we don't know it. We know I before E, except after C, or when sounding like A as a neighboring way. And that song bears witness that we do. The thing is, we just don't take time to consider it. And that's largely what this song is doing to the people of Israel. Part of this song is going to outline the way, and after Israel rebels against God, that God is going to punish them. And this song says, addresses this when it says this. Look at verse 28 through 29. For they, that's Israel, are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. In other words, God is causing them to sing what he doesn't want them to learn by experience. He's saying, look at the judgment. Look at how I'm going to judge sin. Look at how other nations are going to attack you and judge you. If you were wise, you'd know your end. But in singing this song, you're reminded of your end. So may it cause you to live differently. May it cause you to obey. May you choose to not face punishment, but instead choose life. And so when songs bear witness, when God's word bears witness, it can be both weighty in terms of here, where it's reminding them of judgment, but it can also be, at times, wonderful. Part of the story of Sarah, of my wife's conversion, was that a song one day bore witness of the gospel, and it revealed it in a way she had never considered before, and was a dynamic part of her salvation. When she was in, college, or when she was in high school, she got invited to uh, a Bible camp by a friend, and while they were at the Bible camp, they sang the song which we sing here, In Christ Alone. And there are two lines in that song that stood out to her. And the first was, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. But in the next verse, the next stanza, it defines that peace. And it says this, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. In that moment, that song bore witness to the fact that her life needed peace. And the only way that peace comes is through Jesus' work of dying for her sins on the cross, of taking away the wrath of God which she deserved and instead getting the righteousness of Jesus. And she responded to it with faith and repentance. You see, songs get stuck in our head. Worship songs get stuck in our head and they help remind us of what we need to hear, of how we need to respond. There are many times when I'm wrestling with the weight of sin where what comes to my mind first is not necessarily Scripture, which is probably unfortunate, but what does come is the line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Why? Because I have sung that song hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And it reminds me, just because you're Christian doesn't mean fighting sin is going to be easy but we need to cling to God. And so God is prescribing this song to his people, not only because he's worthy of it, but he's prescribing this song to his people because he loves them and he wants them to be changed by it. Songs which display truth about God can bear witness 
of our own sin. And they could also lead us to respond by coming to repentance, by choosing to obey. And so the application of this is that you should be careful what you sing because you might just mean it. We sing wonderful words in the songs we sing here at this church. And we want you to mean those words. The songs we sing, they're not Scripture, but they bear witness to it. And they remind us of it. God wrote this song, so this song, which is Scripture, so that it would be practical help for His people. He wants it, as we see at the end, to be their life. He wants this song to cause them to endure in the land. He wants this song to be the bedrock foundation for good. But what's interesting is how is God going to produce this result? What is God going to do in this song which produces a desire to choose life and to not choose sin? And this is our second point today. What do Christians sing? We sing because God wants and is worthy. We sing because it's good for us and reminding us. But what do we sing? In other words, what is the substance of this song? What should be the substance of the songs we sing here that actually help get to that end, that actually help change us for good? What pleases God and what changes us? Well, look at how this song opens. We'll pick up in verses 30. Of the, so the last verse of 31 and the first three verses of chapter 32. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. So here's the song. I'll give you a hint. It doesn't rhyme. Give ears, O heaven, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So God wants this to change people. We saw that in chapter 31. We saw that in chapter 32. But what is the content by which these people will be changed? They will sing of the greatness of God. God's people are to sing of his greatness. Now, don't skip over this. If you miss this part, you will miss much of what we are trying to do here at Sovereign Hope. When we talk about gospel change for all of life, what shapes our preaching, what shapes our kids' ministry, what shapes our worship, what shapes everything, comes down to what God is teaching us here as rain from heaven, as dew on the tender herb, and that is this. That one of the most practical things in your life one of the truths which most fundamentally shapes how we live is your view of the greatness of God. God wanted his people to be changed. And so he's going to remind them of God's greatness. And that changes things. And it might seem the most impractical thing. But we know it's practical. I'll give you two examples. In the movie Aladdin, Abu the monkey is in the cave of wonders, and they've been told not to touch anything, and he sees this red ruby, right? And he knows he's not supposed to touch the ruby, and his friends are trying to keep him from grabbing the ruby, but the ruby is so compelling to him that he reaches out and he grabs it and he takes it. And in that moment, he has what his heart most longed for. And yet, all of a sudden, the cave starts shaking. Starts melting. What does Abu do? He tries to put the ruby back. 
The ruby didn't change. Nothing's different about the ruby. But his encounter with greatness has changed him. He's witnessed something greater, and that is whatever this cave is doing, and it leads him in a way to repent, to act differently. And to use this in a positive example, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when it seems the armies of Narnia have been defeated by the White Witch and everyone is withdrawing back into the hills, there's a moment where Aslan appears. Aslan, who is resurrected from the dead. And in that moment, when the armies of Narnia see the greatness of the living lion, they turn around. And they begin to go right onto the exact same battlefield. Not because their enemy is any different, but because in an encounter with Aslan's greatness, they were changed. You see, it's true, isn't it? That in experiencing the greatness of someone else, we learn little pieces about ourselves. And it causes us to respond. It causes us to respond in fear. It causes us to respond in zeal. It causes us to respond in humility. God's goal is that his people would be changed by this song. And the means upon which God changes his people is the impression of his greatness. Learning to sing of God's greatness is one of the most practical truths. Being reminded of God's greatness is one of the most practical truths you can have as a follower of God. But what's important is that we see what God himself says is great. That we don't just describe greatness by worldly terms, but that God is actually going to tell us what about him is great. What about him are things we should remind ourselves of. What about him are things that change us. And that's what this song is about. This song is reminding them of the attributes of God which are great so that they might be changed. And this song is a big psalm. If you just look at it in your, in your uh, Bible, it spans what is uh, roughly four pages on my, uh, in my Bible. It's a big song, and it really unpacks all of the history of Israel. It's really uh, dense in that it's almost everything that we've talked about in Deuteronomy in the previous 31 chapters, all right here in one extended chapter. It starts with the calling of Abraham. It includes their desert wanderings. It looks forward to their prophesied exile where their sin leads them away from God and to be judged by other nations. And then it looks forward at their one day coming redemption. It is dense, it is long, and you could literally preach dozens of sermons on the theology inside of this song. But what we're going to do today is in line of this theme of seeing God's greatness. That's why God's giving them this song. He wants them to see greatness and be changed by it. We're going to just look at the three primary themes of God's greatness in this song, and it's going to shape us as we consider God and as we remind ourselves of this. So the first place we see God's greatness is we see God's greatness in his nature. We see God's greatness in who he is. Read with me the first four verses of the song. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. Like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And so this song starts out by declaring 
who God is. God does not want us to forget who he is. And most of our songs as Christians, at least a large swath of what we sing, reminds us that God is not like us. In fact, he's completely unlike us, which is what makes the incarnation of Jesus Christ so astounding that someone so wholly other, Hebrews says, would be made like us. And yet in that, he is still fully God and fully man. Which means when we sing to God, it's not just another love song. God is not our girlfriend, and our worship songs should show that difference. It should talk about God in a unique way. As Moses puts it here, God is what he calls the rock. And that's a theme that's going to come up, I believe, five times in this song. What does Moses mean when he calls God the rock? I remember when I was younger, uh, we visited New York City. And I've spent most of my life here in Missoula, and I remember being there, and I remember thinking, what horribly maligned creature would live in New York City? One of them leads us in worship. Because I looked around at this endless span of concrete and chaos and people, and I just got anxious. And I couldn't really put my finger on the anxiety. Maybe it was the smell of urine on every possible corner. But we took a tour, and in this, the tour guide said that in all of Manhattan, there are two houses with grass. I was like, that's why I'm anxious. Like, I just want to stand on a place that isn't stained in something and just feel safe. Feel like I'm not going to get squished by something. And I realized that's all I wanted. I wanted a break from the chaos. I wanted this little slice of peace. I wanted some grass to stand on. And this is the kind of imagery that Moses is invoking when you consider what the Israelites have been through. He speaks of God as the rock to a people who have spent 40 years wandering on the changing sands of the desert. You can imagine that these people are aching for something which doesn't slide away under your feet. For a place that doesn't sting your eyes with sand. For a foundation for your home which doesn't erode when it is rainy or when it's windy. Something which stands firm despite whatever circumstance you're in. And Moses is saying, that rock, that concrete foundation on which you have hope upon hope upon hope is this God. This God who created you, this God who called you, this God who covenanted himself to you. And he is so other than anything else you've ever experienced. In fact, it's hard for us to talk about God in categories apart from biblical categories. Because we use words like perfect, we use words like just, we use words like faithful when describing like super good or uh, imitable humans. But the truth is, even your mima is not perfect. They are not fully just, they are not fully faithful. But Moses is saying here, this rock is perfect in everything he does. We are in the midst of a political debate season, and all those politicians are doing is looking at their track record to show how effective they are. But we don't have to look long before we see ineffective leadership or legislation. But this God, his work is perfect. 
There is no fault with this God. He is righteous. He is just. He is faithful. He cannot rob. He cannot deceive. He has no shortcoming. There is no one like this God. And we need to be reminded of this. In Montana, we experience vastness and transcendence just about every morning with sunrises. We climb peaks, we visit glacier, and we are in awe of something which is not like us. And this is why we must learn to have a habit of seeing God's nature as something completely marvelous, completely supernatural. If God is like us, It'll be easy to follow him when things are great. It'll be like having a best bud you could share stories with. But if we forget that God is not like us, when hardships come, when suffering comes, when testing comes, we begin to think that this God who is like us has the same limitations as us. And because of that, we start looking for someone else, for someone or something which can be distinct. But this God is distinct. Look at how Moses speaks of this God in verse 31 in contrast to the other gods of this day. He says, For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. So, here God is having them sing of this time when other nations are going to judge them for their sin and he reminds them that those nations have no God like your God. You don't need to fear these nations because they are not God. God is greater. God's rock is the true rock. He reminds them that even though they are mighty, they are not as mighty as God. And we need to remind ourselves of that, don't we? We often get caught in circumstances and situations where it's easy to see the circumstance or the situation as not just a rock, but the rock. And unless we are used to reminding ourselves of how transcendent and wonderful this God is, he will just be one of another option in this world. But this God is unlike anything else. Look at Psalm 113, verses 4 through 9. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. What does God's greatness end with? Praise the Lord. We must constantly create habits of reminding ourselves of God's greatness because you are going to encounter great trials in this world, and you are going to encounter great things in this world. And unless you are constantly reminding yourself of the God who is greater than all of those, then this God will whisper, then we will lie to our heart about this God and say, he can do nothing about it. But God wants his people to be reminded of his greatness. And it's here he begins to introduce a new character into the song, beginning in verse four. So after we see God's greatness, Things transition, starting in verse 4. This rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, that's Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. That is him who is wonderful. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you, Israel, repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? 
Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elder and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted character. Here we have God in his great unparalleled nature who chooses out of all people, out of all of his created world, a people for his possession. If you're a husband, I guarantee you, you've had that moment in time where you say to yourself, how did I get a wife? Maybe it's just me. But I had this moment yesterday where I'm like, how did a... I see some wives shaking their heads. Um, I, <laughs> it's like, how did a woman love me and want to spend their life with me? And yet this wonderful thing like, the fact that any guy gets married shows that all guys are swinging out of their league. Like, we're weird, we're sweaty, we're smelly, and that women would want to be with us for the rest of our lives is simply astounding. But that's only a glimpse of the difference between a God and us. That's only a picture of the astounding nature of God's love for his people. And this is the second theme we learn when it comes to God's greatness, is that we see God's greatness in his love towards his people. We see God's greatness in his love towards his people. And if we don't see God as independently beautiful, then we're always going to make little of his love for us. If God is just like us, then that love is always going to be minimized. But the greater and the more set apart God is, the more astounding his love is for us. I love how David puts this here in Psalm 8, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Do you hear what David is saying? Have you maybe even unknowingly experienced what David is saying? When you look at the whole world, don't you begin to see the wonder of it? There are places like Glacier National Park. They have, there are wonders like Victoria Falls or Mount Everest. We have amazingly powerful beasts like the elephant, majestic creatures like the blue whale, beasts of mass and strength like the rhinoceros, and wonderfully intelligent creatures like the dolphin. And all I'm saying is that after you watch planet Earth, if you are God, and you are going to choose someone or something as your possession, you probably wouldn't choose the only people eating laundry detergent. <laughs> you have the whole world. And he chose sinful, broken people. God created the cosmos freely and willingly but he chose to love those who cannot even map the depths of them. God, in his free and wonderful will, chose to create. And in creation, he made Adam and Eve because he desired to be their God. 
and for them to be his people. Why would we deserve this grace? Why would God choose to put his love on a special people? We don't know, but God loved to do it. He wanted to do it. And look at the way this song is to remind Israel of God's free nature in choosing a specific people group for his glory out of his free and wonderful love. Beginning in verse 10. And so uh, God and Moses as the leader here is going to personify Israel as a person. And so the he in this is generally going to be um, uh, Israel or the him. So he, that is God, found him, that is Israel, in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness, He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock and with oil out of the flinty rock. Curds from the herd, there's where it rhymes, and milk from the flocks, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, and with the very finest of the wheat, you drank the foaming wine made from the blood of grapes. So here is Israel, a person whom God found, God blessed, God kept, who made it through the desert the hardest times without the help of any foreign God. God was sufficient. This rock was sufficient when no one else was. And the rock was with them. And that's how it ends. There's this wandering person, and God found them and cared for them and blessed them. You see, we live in a culture which demands loveliness in order to be loved. Make this much money, and I'll love you. Get this degree, and I love you. Look this way, and I'll love you. Do this thing, and I'll love you. But God started out by loving his people because he wanted to love his people. And if we're not careful, when we think of God, what we remind ourselves of, what we sing of, is actually culture's expression of love. We seek to celebrate and remind ourselves of our loveliness because that's what culture says you need to have to be safe. If you are lovely, if you meet culture's standards, you'll be good. And so sometimes our reminders and our worship songs make much of our innate loveliness. But that is fleeting and most of the times false. But what the Bible makes much of is not our innate loveliness, but the gracious love of our lover. The gracious love of God who came to us when we were not yet a people, who came to us when we were not at our best and said, I love you, and I am going to change you to be my people. And this contrast between the lover and our unloveliness is seen all the more in this example of Israel. Beginning right after this wonderful picture of God's love, the story picks up, the song picks up in verse 15. But Jeshurun, that's kind of the, a nickname for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. You see, the story of Adam and Eve being with God and turning away from God is the story of Israel 
being chosen by God and turning from God. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that it's the story of all of us. God has displayed in this creative world the invisible attributes of God that we would see him and repent. But each and every one of us has grown fat and kicked. We have scoffed at the rock. What's translated here in the Hebrew, what we've pursued uh, here, it says no gods in the ESV, but literally in Hebrew, it's the non-gods. We have been presented with the God and we choose non-gods. Israel here in this illustration grew fat on the calories of grace, but used all of that to run a marathon of disobedience. At the end, it started because they were unmindful. They were forgetful. You see, for Israel singing the song, it's not really a good look. (laughs) It's not supposed to be. When we sing of our sin, it's to remind us that we're sinful. But when we sing of our sin, we also learn to sing of a God who saved a wretch like me. We also learn to sing that our sins, they were many, but his mercy is more. To realize God's love, we must understand God's loveliness. Or excuse me, to realize God's love, we must understand our unloveliness. Because that's what makes God's love far better than we could ever imagine. Because the astounding part of God's love is not just that he loved us. The astounding part is that after our hearts rebelled against him and scoffed at his mercy and made little of his majesty, he chose to go to great lengths to call us back. This song Israel's being reminded of is a song of a God who loves and a God who is going to love them back into his mercy and he's going to do that through discipline. Discipline in this song is how God is going to fight for his people. Look at verses 21 through 22. They, that's Israel, made me jealous with the non-gods. They provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And I'll provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the death of Sheol. Devours the earth and its increase and sets on fire the foundations of the mountain. The only way a wrath like that ever makes sense is if we see God as holy and beautiful in his nature. That's why this is so devastating. And so God's going to judge them. And look at how this discipline plays out if you skip down to verse 34 through 39. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip... For the day of their calamity, so he's talking about Israel's enemies here, they're going to slip, they're going to have calamity, and their doom comes swiftly. Why are they going to uh, have this calamity? For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When will he have compassion? When he sees that their power is gone, and there is none remaining bond or free. Then he, that's Israel, will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge who ate the fat of their sacrifice and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. And so it's here in this discipline that God brings to people who have wandered from him that we actually see the last theme of God's greatness. 
And that's that we see God's greatness in his exclusive ability to save. God is going to discipline his people so that one day all of those non-gods that the people followed will be shown as what they are. Nothing. Where are your gods of comfort in these moments of sorrow? Where are your gods of sex in this moment of tragedy? They are nowhere because they are no god. They have no legs to even come to you. They have no arms to support you. They have no breath to speak to you. Don't you think that we have amassed enough years of human history that if we were able to find satisfaction and salvation from created things, someone certainly would have found it by now. And yet, almost to a T, it's those who have seemingly reached everything this world offers who display the world's brokenness. How often is it the sex symbols, the business moguls, and the billionaires whose memoirs are those of emptiness and not satisfaction? Which is why verse 30 is what we too need to hear today. See now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. Salvation, comfort, deliverance and vindication come when God in his mercy painfully removes all the non-gods of our life to show us that it is he and he alone who could save to the uttermost. You see, for, there, there, there's a, a tension where when God says, none can deliver from my hands, for some of us, that should incite fear. That for those who have rebelled against this God, his judgment will be poured out on you. But for others, that should give us great comfort. For if God has saved us, if he has saved us on the cross, then nothing can snatch you out of his hands. Something can snatch you out of the hands of comfort. Something can snatch you out of the hands of sexuality. Something can snatch you out of the hands of wealth. But nothing can snatch you out of the hands of a God like this. Do you see this God? If you're not a Christian in here today, I pray that you see this, that you might have made your life following non-God after non-God after non-God, but here God speaks to you and says, see, it's me. I am the living God. I am the one who can save. And no one can take that from you because I hold you fast. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And it's actually this restoration in which this song, which goes pretty dark for a little bit, ends. Look at verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, this entire chapter, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, because of the poetry and the Hebrew poetry and the, the, the grammar it's using, it's really, really hard for translators to translate. Uh, and so, if, depending upon what translation of Scripture you have, what we've read today might look different to you. But actually, um, verse 43 is one of the hardest things for people to translate. And the ESV has a footnote in here, which I think is what most of the other translations pick up, and what I think is a more faithful rendering of this text, and it's this, where it says, He repays those who hate him, and he atones for his land and for his people. 
He repays those who hate him, that's Israel's enemies, and atones for his land and for his people. See, this is the only point in the whole book of Deuteronomy where atonement comes into play. Where what God wants his people to be mindful of, to be burned in the lyric banks of their mind, is vindication from their enemies and one day that God would atone for them and cleanse their land. In other words, this story song shows that despite their faithfulness, God will one day take care of their external and their internal enemies because God will atone. He will cover their sins. Brothers and sisters, this song was to the people of Israel and is for us today a song which testifies to our wonderful need for Jesus Christ. For hope, for reminder, for atonement, and for cleansing. We are those who lack discernment. We are those who, apart from God's word, will not discern our end, but will go headlong into the wages of sin. We cling to non-gods when God has revealed himself to us. We deserve punishment for rejecting a God as beautiful and lovely as this. And God will discipline. He will either discipline you or in an astounding turn of events, he will discipline his son in your place. Where Christ will become the faithless, kicking rebeller. And we will be counted his righteousness. Jesus will take the arrows of God's wrath so that he can cleanse us and bring us back to God. Look at how Paul speaks of this cleansing work of Jesus in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus took the fat, stubborn, rebellious people of God and he washes us and presents us back to the God who chose us. Presents us beautiful, wonderful, faithful, clean, lovely. Lovely not because of our works, but because of Christ's work, which lifts all of our anxiety because our work is going to change, but Jesus' work is completed. And when that is ours, we have great confidence before God. And all of this is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. That you might do what Moses calls to do at the end, that you might see and obey, repent and believe. You see, the truth is Christians will always be a singing people because we have the most to sing about. And if we lose God's deliverance in Jesus Christ, we lose any perspective of God's greatness. If we don't see the exclusivity of God to save, then his nature will always stand against us as ominous if we see it and meaningless when we don't. If we don't see Jesus as the way in which God loved us, then his love will always be distant from us and inaccessible to us. And if we don't see the cross of Jesus where it seemed like everything was going wrong, and yet God was drawing in that moment closest to his people, then we will never be able to worship when times are tough 
or when suffering comes. But the gospel reminds us of all these things. The gospel is the song we sing for the rest of our lives and we sing it for our life. We remind ourselves of it because we need it. And so we sing about it, we talk about it, and we remind each other of it because this song, the song of salvation in Jesus Christ, is no empty word. It is your life. And it changes us because it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see the greatness of God and are changed, are encouraged, are comforted, and are saved. So today, as we close this sermon, I pray that this bears witness to you so that you might stand and praise this God for what he's done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have acted in history, that you have not left us without excuse, that we have seen both in the lives of your church, in your word, and in your world, the wonder of God, the work of the rock which is perfect to redeem. And in supernatural ways, you work in our hearts to open our eyes and turn us to faith. So Lord, help us to not forget. Whether that is in song, whether that is in word, whether that is in reading or discussing or texting, Lord, make us a people who are constantly reminding ourselves and praising you for what you've done. Let us not forget, and so let us sing as a witness and as a reminder of the change that you have brought and you have promised to bring until you take us home. I pray this in your name. Amen.